first off, thank you to um, thank you to all of the, the singers and, and Julie and all the people that uh, that make worship happen here on a regular basis. Uh, as we're looking for you know our new our new worship director and taking however long it takes to do those things, uh, it's it's always nice and blessed to have in a church the size a deep bench of people, isn't it? Um, to rely on. So give, give them a give them a random hand of applause. Uh, that's a huge, it's a huge blessing, certainly to me, but, but whether you know it or not, to all of you as well, and so thank you. Um, that hymn sounded good. That hymn sounded really good. I just enjoy that. Um, because he lives, it's one of those hymns that, you know, maybe you think, because I'm under 40, hymns are like evil to me, but I love, I love some of the, these old good hymns, and life is worth the living just because he lives is perhaps one of the, one of the greater lines written in the hymn universe, I think, and so that's a wonderful one. Um, anyway, so as we continue in the, the Gospel of John, you know, this, this week I was reflecting on my years, probably, I think it's 10 or 11, I, I lose count sometimes, of working with students before I became a pastor. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of blessings when you work with middle and high schoolers. There's a lot of curses as well. One of the beautiful, beautiful things of becoming a senior pastor is that adults generally don't have overnighters. Uh, and so... The only overnighters I have now are involuntary ones with a two-and-a-half-year-old. They're not as fun. Uh, there's, the games are way worse. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that, you know, for me, you know, there's, there's the joking pain points of youth ministry, and then there's the, the serious pain points of youth ministry. And one of, the, one of the serious pain points that, man, I really I just don't miss is, is competing with the crazy busyness of the teenage life. Right? Like trying to figure out how do we squeeze a little bit of God into the five bajillion things that the average 6th through 12th grader has to do in their schedule. Because I don't know, if you, if you haven't had kids for a while, if they're grown, or maybe you haven't had kids yet, or maybe you just never had kids, um, the average 6th through 12th grader is busier than you are as an adult working life, maybe even with two jobs. Right? It's nuts. And one of the, the frustrations that I always had was that when you look at their life, the things that they're invested in, they're not bad things, but they're not eternal things. Like when you splice out the calendar of the average middle and high schooler, you find that they spend the vast majority of their time on things that actually won't affect them at all for the rest of their lives, the moment they graduate from high school. And again, not bad things. But take, for instance, you know, I remember very vividly sitting down uh, like eight or nine years ago with, with, with a kid who was a soccer player, and we had a great conversation. Soccer was just stressing him out. You know, he was the six travel teams his whole life, you know, varsity, everything, you know, maybe going to get that college scholarship potentially. Um, and we sat down because he was just burned out, right? Because this kid, like eight, eight hours a day of soccer, somehow, like in the midst of school, and he would fit it in, and he would leave practice, and then he'd go home and practice more, and he was always tired. And I finally said to him, you know, I love soccer. I mean, I grew up in Europe. Like, right? like my life was soccer until the streetlights came on every single night. But, like, you're spending all this time on this thing that probably within two years of your life isn't going to be a part of it anymore. And maybe just keep that in perspective. And I'll never forget, like, the, the face of realization Right, of, of man, I'm, I'm putting hours and hours and it's killing me into this thing that will be insignificant. Yeah, I'll have the memories, but right, talk to like high school and college athletes when they're like 23 years old. 
a lot of sadness there because it's like this thing that consumed you that was your identity and it's no longer there. Right? Like it's, and it's not just athletics, it's anything. It's the arts, it's, it's whatever we get involved in that has to be happening so that we can put it on a college resume someday and all these things. But man, it is shocking. Like 60 to 70% of the average middle and high schooler's life is spent on stuff that the moment they walk onto a college campus is totally irrelevant after that. Right? And then it got me thinking that we in life do a lot of the same thing. I think we, we tend to spend an exorbitant amount of time on things <clears throat> that are relatively temporary, and we spend that time at the expense of things that are longer term and eternal. Right? And we do it in silly ways, right? Like last week I joked about you know, eating barbecue because barbecue is delicious when it could affect my health. And spoiler alert, that night, last week on Sunday, around 2, 3 o'clock, I said, and I, and I had barbecue, and it was delicious. Right. And I'll, I might do it again. Uh, but it's silly in, in those ways, but it's also silly. We, we like to spend a lot of time. We, we don't tend to have time for maybe like church things or personal devotional things because we just fill our lives with all this stuff. Right? And some stuff has to happen. We have to sleep. We have to eat. We have to work. But man, we just, we just kill ourselves. And this eternal aspect of our life tends to be put on the back burner because, well, that's eternal. We can always worry about that next week. Right? The people that we're in encounter today in the Gospel of John, um, they have a similar attitude. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to it. And so this, this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, uh, which is the feeding of the 5,000. But we're not going to read a single word of the actual feeding of the 5,000. Um, because hopefully, and if you haven't, that's okay, hopefully you know what the passage of the feeding of the 5,000 is about, right? <clears throat> Jesus fed 5,000 people with a miraculous amount of loaves and fishes, right? There was like a little basket with some loaves and fishes, and he fed 5,000, and then there were 12 baskets left. So like the leftovers of the feeding were 12 times the amount of the actual starting food, and it's this miracle where he feeds all these people, and right, each of them is not just has eaten, like portion controlled, but they've had seconds and thirds and fourths. Like it says they're all satisfied. Right? What I want to focus on is what happens after, because this passage is one of those times where, you know, John has the sign and you're supposed to read the miracle as it happens, and then hopefully you somewhere in there can figure out what the sign is pointing to. This is one of those passages where there's the miracle, which is chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through 21. Uh, and then after that, there's, a, there's another miracle in there, too, about Jesus walking on water, right? And then starting in verse 22 through the rest of chapter 6, we have this explanation of the miracle. Like, he actually connects with the people that he performed the miracle for, and he teaches them. And he has the saying in it where he talks about being the bread of life. And so that's where we're going to spend most of our time in this morning. We're going to look at that passage together. And I just want to set the scene for you. So Jesus has crossed the river... The sea, of, river, the sea of Galilee, right? And he's, and he's teaching, and when he gets to the other side, he's trying to get away from people, right? Like, he's just, he's, Jesus is like the worst advertiser marketer, right? Like, today, if Jesus, you know, we would put, like, Facebook ads up of where he's speaking, and, you know, you'd have, I don't know, Foursquare or whatever. People still use Foursquare. I don't know. Right? To find out where everybody is, right? And you would have that, bat, but Jesus was trying to get away from people. And so he's crossing the sea, and when he gets to the other side, the people are all there. Like, he can't get a break. And so he's there, and he's like, all right, I'm te I'll teach some more. And he's teaching the people, and eventually it starts to get to dinner time, and they're hungry. 
And there's all these people that are being unfed. And Jesus starts to think, listen, these people are far from home. Like, if it's, if it's like a family coming through town, you know, they can go to someone's house and get a meal. But, like, we got we to feed these folks. And that's where the miracle comes in. And so he feeds them miraculously. And then what happens is afterwards, they try to make him king. They want to make him king because he fed them. And he refuses. And so he goes up on his own on the mountainside to pray. And he tells the disciples to go ahead and get in the boat and go back across. Right? Maybe this time they can get away from the people. Maybe if Jesus disappears, the disciples can get away clean. And so they sail off on their boats. And Jesus goes up on the mountainside. And then a storm arises. And as Jesus comes back down, he just walks on the water to his disciples. And so they're like halfway there. And he meets them on the water and is like, oh, hey, guys, sorry. Like, I was praying on the mountain. Can I, can I get on the boat? Like, my feet are tired. Right? And he gets in and he gets to the other side. And then in the morning, the people who had stayed behind realize Jesus isn't there anymore. And so they also get into their boats and they cross over again. Jesus can't catch a break. And then they find him at the other side with the disciples. And so we pick up at that point. right? We pick up and they're in Capernaum. And they see him there, and they start to question as to how he got to where he got, and all these kinds of things. And so that's where we pick up our passage. And I'll warn you, it's long. And one of the things I want to ask us to do um, is to stand together as we read God's word. Sometimes it helps, right? We stand every once in a while, and we read the word of God, because one of the things that it allows us to do, when we stand, it's a natural posture of, of respect. And so we stand in respect of God's word as we read it together this morning. Uh, and it is John chapter 6, verses 22, all the way through verse 40. Here's what it says. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread, of the Lord, bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, why did you come here? Like, essentially, they're saying, Jesus, why did you leave us? Like, where, where are you going? Like, we want to come, right? You ever know that person who clings to you, who, like, wherever you go, they are? And you're like, Right. So here's Jesus' answer in verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, a.k.a. Jesus. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? As if he hadn't performed a bunch of works already. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They really like bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, 
and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated again. Okay. So after finding Jesus and encountering him, he's frustrated, right? In verse 25, he essentially says this. He's like, where were you, Jesus? You're not here because you saw signs or because you're curious about me or you're interested in what I actually have to offer you. You're here because you ate bread and it was tasty and you want more of it, right? You just want another free meal and a show. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm trying to give you an eternal meal, right? That's what he says. Don't look for the, the food that perishes, but look for the food that doesn't perish. And so then their response to him is, well, what do we have to do to be doing God's work? And he gives them, in, in verse 29, an answer of nothing. You have to do nothing. They want to earn it. They want to get to God on their merit, in their way, on their time, so that they can have God owe them. Right? That's, that's the disease. That's the sin of self-righteousness. Right? You would think it sounds good. I don't want free grace. I want to work for it. Right? In our culture, we think that's a good thing. We want to work for what we get. But in the culture of God, what we're really saying when we reject the free gift and we start to ask, well, what can I do? We want to work for it because then we get to say God owes it to us, right? That's why, that's what self-righteousness is. It's us trying to earn our way to God because if we earned it, then we are due it, right? We get to stand at the pearly gates after we die and God says, you stand condemned in sin. Yeah, but I earned my way here. You can't kick me out. That's what self-righteousness is. And God's saying, no, all you have to do you, you have to believe. Your entrance comes through me and through me alone. And so when you stand in front of your maker after your death, you have to stand there in all humility. And when he asks you, is why should I let you in? Your response better be nothing but I, I have nothing, no reason. You shouldn't let me in. I shouldn't have life with you. I shouldn't have, I don't earn it. I haven't deserved it in any way. Right? And Jesus is the, the vehicle through which we get to come and enter in. It's entirely on our own. It takes an unbelievable amount of humility that, that we intrinsically just don't want to have. Right? We want to have, we want to contribute. Right? Right? No one likes a handout. Right? But Jesus is saying here, he's speaking and cutting to their core, and he says, listen, all you have to do is believe. Right? And so then, this is one of the most like brazen passages in Scripture to me, then they tell him, well, if you want us to believe, what sign are you going to do to prove to us that you're worth believing? After he fed the 5,000 and healed you know, the official son and healed the, the, the invalid guy at the pool. And he did all these miracles and, and wine, you know, water to wine and all these things. They have just literally have watched him do sign after sign. And when he asked them to believe, their response is, what are you going to do to prove to us that you're worth believing? Right? And so that's, that's what he responds with. He says, listen, like, 
what, what sign do you want me to do? And he says, well, you know, in, in Exodus, you know, Moses and the manna, and they go on this whole thing of, you know, we want you to do this big thing. And, and Moses plays a really big role, as we'll look at a little bit later in this, because in a lot of ways, the manna and Moses is a type of Christ, right? We'll see that in just a second. But he, he essentially counters them back, right, that, that, that uh, it's not Moses who gave the manna in Exodus. It's God who gave it through Moses. Like, do you really think that, like, Moses was the star of the show in that? I'm not sure how you got that out of that book. A lot of you have recently read Exodus, right? Probably, like, mid-January. Right? Like, do you get the sense that Moses is the star of the show? I don't. I get the sense that Moses is the puny coward who can't speak for his life unless God lets him and intervenes. Right? And somehow he stumbles through leadership and is able to accomplish things because God works in him. To me, it's pretty clear when you read Exodus that God is the main character of the story, and he's the one doing all the things, right? Moses is not a magician. Moses isn't raining manna down from heaven. Moses is as stunned of the, at the manna coming down as, as the people are. But yet, the, the Jews idolized Moses. Moses was their homeboy. Oh, my gosh. They loved this guy so much. And so they're saying, what sign are you going to do? Moses did some pretty crazy stuff in the Exodus. Like, are you going to top it? Moses didn't give you the bread. God did. And, and, and here's this bread that will, give you, that will give you forever life. It's not a bread that's temporary, that you'll be hungry again tomorrow. It's a bread that will satisfy forever. And so they said, give us this bread always. And this is a hearkening back again to Moses, because here's their logic. Jesus fed 5,000 people miraculously once. Moses fed the entirety of Israel daily for 40 years. So naturally, Moses is way better than you. So if we're going to believe in you, we're going to need to see something, right? So like, don't just give us this bread once. We, we got to see you give it to us always. Like, we just want to see, like, this is how we want lunch to be from now on. We show up with, like, a loaf of bread, and you make 5,000 out of it. That's the miracle we want. You better step it up like, you're, like Moses did back in the day if we're going to believe a word that you have to say. And then Jesus' reply is just beautiful, right? This passage, more than any in John, cements this understanding of Jesus' miracles as signs because what we have is this clear manifestation of Jesus' frustration at the people here, right? They're following him to see the next big miracle. And one commentator writes this, instead of seeing what the signs communicate, the crowd only sees a way to get their bellies filled. I love that phrase. And remember, everything Jesus does means something more and communicates something about who he is. And so his frustration here is warranted, and his reply confuses them even more. He says, I am the bread of life. Imagine if your children came to you and were like, give us food always. Like if Graham was like, I want bread, Daddy, and I would just be like, I am the bread. <laughs> when he's old enough, I might do that. See what he does. Right? Like It's a confusing statement that he makes, but he's saying, I am am not supplying bread like Moses, who didn't even supply it. I am the bread that I'm talking about. Do you want permanent, long-term sustenance that doesn't fade, that doesn't make you hungry the next day? I am it. And then he goes into explanation mode. And that's 35 through 40. Let's take a look at that. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. He's saying, listen, you get, you've been watching me this whole time, but, but yet you can't put faith and trust and belief in what, what you're seeing. Like, I'm trying to communicate something about who I am. I am a God who, who puts disease on its knees. I'm a God who looks at invalids and says, no more. I'm a God who looks at the amount of food there is and says, no, my people will have abundance in every way possible. Right? I'm a God who looks at parties without wine and says, no way, not on my watch. There will be celebration as long as I am around. That's who I am. And you've been watching it, but you're not seeing it. It's all you want is the freeloader meal. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but that of the one who sent me. This is the will, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son should have eternal life. He's telling them straight up, this isn't about bread and feeding. This isn't about where your next lunch will come from. This is about what happens the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And after you die and throughout all eternity, I am the one who's going to provide it for you, and you just keep asking for manna. I have a feast set on a table 15 feet long, and you want the crumbs on the ground, because that's what you're used to. You don't even know what it is that you want to be asking for. If you did, you would ask it for, and I would give it to you. You want to talk about Moses? Moses is nothing compared to me, says the Lord. Moses didn't do any of that. I did. And by the way, when I did it in Exodus, I did it as a foreshadowing of the one who I would send, my son. Right? I love the words of R. Kent Hughes, his commentary on John. He says this, There are several similarities between manna and Jesus, the bread of life. The manna typified Jesus, for it was like white fallen snow, just as Christ was without blemish or imperfection. Manna was also accessible. Here's the key. This is one of its main virtues. When a man walked outside the camp to gather it, he had a choice. He could either tread on it or he could pick it up. We can either tread upon Jesus or we can take him as our savior. To change metaphors, the scripture says Jesus can either be a cornerstone or a stumbling block. And how we respond to him is what makes all the difference. And therein lies our invitation for this day. Jesus is saying to the people in this passage, stop being bystanders that freeload off of the miracles that I provide for you. Yes, I am a God of healing. Yes, I am a God of feeding. Yes, I am a God of celebration. Yes, I am a God of abundance. And yes, I promise you all those things. If not in this life, then in the next. See, we want it in this life. We want God's abundance and his blessing in our way on our timing. You realize that's where the whole health and wealth gospel even comes from, right? Like all the things that the health and wealth gospel promises you, you realize those are actual promises that God makes. He just doesn't make them on your terms and your timing. Like follow the Lord and he will give you all your heart's desires. You will have abundantly. You will not lack. You will be pain free. Yeah, but maybe not on this side of heaven. Every promise that every health and wealth preacher has ever thrown your way is true. It just might not be on this side of heaven. And the, the, the sadness of the health and wealth gospel is that it tells you that you can have it now if you just sow seed, right? No. The Lord says, listen, I am actually setting the table for you that you want. 
It's just not looking the way that you might want it to right this moment. You got to get on board and you got to follow me. And you got to walk my path and my ways. You don't just come for the free meal. Because there's going to be phases throughout the life of Christendom where there's no free meals, there may be no meals. There's going to be hardship as followers of Christ. If you want to know if the Christian life promises nothing but abundance, you got to go and read some people that were martyrs for the faith. you got to read yourself some Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the like. And you start to find out real quick that that's not the promise God makes in this life at this time, in this moment. Right? His promise is that his way is good. One of the, one of the cultural lies that pervades the world today when it comes to Christianity is that people don't want to get on board with Christ because Christians are just, it's, it's such a restrictive faith. Right? Christians are restricted and, and repressed. <laughs> and that's the lie. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Because here's the thing. It may seem to the world like to follow Christ is to give up our freedom. But it's the opposite. To follow Christ is to look at the way life is going in this world to see it for what it is and to say, I, I have lived in what I think of as full freedom. I've done it my way for years and years and years. But where has it gotten? Maybe there is actually freedom in voluntary submission. And so that Christianity isn't us having to begrudgingly submit to a bunch of Christ's rules for how we live on this earth and what we do with our time, our talent, and our treasure. But what Christianity is, is us saying, what we, when we are completely free as we think of it and we do whatever we want, it doesn't seem to work. There's something in the way of it working out, and that's sin, but most people don't understand that. Right? And so what Christianity is, is saying, you know, maybe the way that he's got is a better way. Maybe to be truly free means to voluntarily submit yourself to another's way of life. And to say to the one who made us and who loves us and who demonstrates that love through sending his son to the cross, yeah, you might have a better way of approaching life than I do. You know, I'm going to submit myself to that. And what you'll find is when you do that, that's where true freedom lies. It's not in doing it the way that you want. It's not in picking yourself up by your own bootstraps and going your own route and going after all the world has to offer. Listen, if that's what you want to do, I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to stand up here and guilt you into submission to do all the churchy things that you're supposed to do. That's not what we're about. If you're going to be here and you're going to worship and you're going to hear from God's word, hear this, you are free to go do life as you want. No one in this church will restrict you from doing life as you want. But if you are here, you will hear consistently of a better way. So when you are out there, and when you're doing life on your own terms, and when you finally get tired of it, because it's gotten you nowhere, you can come and you can study God's word, and you can read the scriptures, and you can hear preaching, and you can be in studies, and you can learn about a better way, and you can choose that way. And what God is saying is, stop getting the free meals and being here for that, and start getting on the bus of that way because, man, that's where abundant, eternal, never-ending life is. It's nowhere else. 
As I tell my kid when it comes to new foods, try it. You might like it. Right? That's what he's telling his people here. Don't come for the bread. He came for the food. Maybe next week someone will come for the potluck and stay for Jesus. Right? If you're coming here for a potluck, great. We'd love to come and connect and eat with you. But I'll tell you the same thing Jesus said in this passage. Don't just keep coming back for the free food, as delicious as it is. What are we actually here for? We're here to hear from the one who transforms lives. We're here because we're tired of doing it our way. We're here because we acknowledge that it hasn't worked and it isn't working and it's not going to keep working. And if we want to have life and have it abundantly and have it eternal, there is one way to get it, and it is Jesus Christ, and it is to come to the feet of him on the cross and to submit ourselves and to say, your way or the highway, and he will bless that. And you will have life abundant. Maybe not now, but man, on the other side, for sure. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you, in you, we have life abundant that never perishes. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does provide in the tangible ways that this morning as we woke up, we ate and were filled. And that you provide for our daily needs. Lord, as we pray, give us this day our daily bread. You actually, in fact, do provide our daily bread. But Lord, so much more than that. You give us a life, a life abundant. We thank you for that life. We thank you that you sent your son to live on this earth, to walk amongst your people, to disciple those who he had contact with, to teach his ways and to perform miracles and signs so that we might understand him and know him today. And Lord, we pray that each and every one of us in this room might know him today. As our Savior and as our King. We pray for those areas of our lives that sin has covered, that we have a hard time submitting. Lord, we pray that you would be gentle and dismantle those things in us. That as we grow more and more in your likeness, Lord, that each week that passes, as we read your word and hear your truth and see you at work, we might be willing to just give a little more and a little more and a little more of ourselves to you. That we would find the blessing in that. Because your life is better than any life that we could come up with on our own. Thank you for that truth. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.